you know, it's easy to start your own website. Uh, it's easy to find wholesale places that will sell this stuff. But running a business, especially at this scale, is not easy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Oh, another day, another Reichmark at the old armaments factory, you know? We've got a great guest on this week's episode, and I think you're really going to like it. But before we get started, I just wanted to take a brief moment to say thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon. And a special thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Devin, Benjamin, Paul, Gavin, and Bradley. Thanks a lot, guys. We really appreciate your support. I'm super excited for our special guest on today's episode, someone who I've wanted to talk to on the podcast for a long time, uh, Rick from Hessen Antique. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. To start off, why don't you just go ahead and tell us kind of how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting? Well, uh, like a lot of folks, I'm a, uh, a baby boomer. And my dad was in World War II, and all my uncles were in World War II. And so you know, growing up in New York City in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, watching all those war movies on the 4.30 afternoon movie uh, and playing soldier, grew up playing with G.I. Joes and, and all the Marks toy sets, uh, that was pretty much you know, the indoctrination uh, between watching reruns of Rat Patrol and, and, and everything else. Uh, I kind of got the bug early and uh, playing soldier all my my uncles and and my dad's friends would always give me their old army stuff so I, I kind of started collecting at a really really young age and as I got in my teens it became more interesting it was more than than just playing soldier it was you know this is really cool uh, World War II history that I have. And, and so that's where I kind of caught the collecting bug. How long was it until you got kind of started with uh, getting involved with reenacting? Well, I, I was never interested in reenacting. And it wasn't until actually probably 1991 when I was in the Army. I was stationed in Germany in a place called Hohenfels, which is a big um, maneuver training center uh, down in Bavaria. And uh, we had literally just got there and about two weeks later, somebody said, hey, you know, there's going to be a World War II reenactment uh, on post. And, and like a lot of collectors and, and army guys, I was like, all right, yeah, so yeah, I really didn't care. But I started to see all these tanks and Jeeps and trucks pulling into the motor pool one day. And I was like, wow, I got to go check this shit out. And um, make a long story short, I, I kind of got sucked into it. And... Um, because I was an officer and I was stationed there, uh, they wanted me to be involved, and uh, it was a bunch of Germans and Americans that were doing it, and uh, I, I kind of caught the bug from that. That must have been really wild, uh, being a United States Army officer in Germany and participating in World War II reenactments. Uh, I can't, I can't really imagine what the dynamic was <laughs> like, but I've heard. I've heard that those events were like legendary. Like you said, there were tanks and, and lots of people doing it. Is, is that they right? They were. We had 
probably I'd say six tanks or more and, 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 and a, probably a dozen World War II German vehicles, uh, probably a dozen or more American vehicles. We had about 400 folks, and uh, the funny thing was all the Germans wanted to be Americans, and the Americans wanted to all be Germans. So that was, uh, that was neat. And that was the first one we did. And then we did another one the second a year after that, which was even bigger. And because I was a company commander, I had access to, to the weapons in my arms room. So we were able to put 50 cals on, on all the tanks with blank adapters, and we had blanks. And I got uh, German MG3s from the Bundeswehr, so I, we had, you know, MG42s with, with blanks, and uh, it, was, it was pretty wild. Holy hell, that sounds awesome. We had, we had anti-tank, we had an 88 that was firing Hoffman devices, which are the blanks that you use on tanks, and uh, Pac-75s and 105 howitzers. It was crazy. We had all kinds of stuff. What were the uniforms like back then on the German side? Uh, what were you guys wearing? The... There was a mix of some original stuff and the East German stuff had just become available because, again, it's 1991, 1992, so the, there was plenty of that stuff around and uh, some converted uh, Swiss, uh, Swedish stuff. And there was a, only one or two dealers that were selling reproduction camouflage uh, uh, things in those days. Um, there was a guy in Pennsylvania, I can't remember the name of the store, Military History Shop or something like that. And there was a, another couple of Europeans that were starting. So there was, there was some stuff out there, but it was really a mix of, of original stuff and, and you know, homemade stuff. Those must have been some of the first World War II reenactments to happen in Europe, I've got to say. Yeah, think. they definitely were. That's for sure. That's really cool. What was the attitude of uh, the U.S. Army at that time of... I mean, the event, I guess, took place on the Army base, right? Uh, you know, what was the kind of feeling about having World War II reenactments in that kind of a setting? Well, we did it for two years, and everybody thought it was great. It was in all the Army newspapers over there, and uh, there was, uh, it was on AFN, which is like the American news network for, uh, for folks stationed overseas. But then... Probably in, in 1993, we weren't able to do it because the Bundeswehr complained, uh, and I guess it got to the German media somehow that you know there was people running around in, in, in Nazi uniforms and, and uh, honoring and celebrating war, and so it, it that was we weren't able to do it again after that, and that's about the same time that all that. Uh, uh, Rex Extremis, uh, the, the right-wing stuff started to kick up in Germany as well. So that's when they kind of put the kibosh on it. It's really interesting because I kind of look at the, uh, the reenactment scene now and how social changes make reenacting World War II like more or less acceptable. Uh, but this, I guess, is something that you kind of already experienced uh, a long time ago. Yeah, and it's even funny because uh, there was, like, living history events. A town, for example, would, that was on the Neckar River, and I can't remember the name of it, had a living history event. There were bunkers uh, on, the so on the banks of this river that they had cleaned up, and they allowed us to set up. And we, it was actually an SS unit that... that uh, man those bunkers defending against the 100th U.S. Infantry Division. And they wanted SS units there to, to, for this living history. So you had all these Americans and Germans showing up with full SS kit. Uh, this was probably in 93 or 94. Uh, 
out in the public in Germany, and everybody thought it was the coolest thing. But that was about the last time we got to do that. Wow, wild. I mean, I don't know. I feel like some stuff flies until, well, it doesn't, basically. You're like a reporter gets a hold of it, you know? But, yeah, such is life. Yeah, and then pretty much after that, we started getting really focused on the, the 50th anniversary of, of World War II and D-Day uh, in particular. And so we all kind of switched over to GI, and uh, that was pretty much the focus of the American reenacting scene in, in Europe after that. It must have really started some trends, you know, like a lot of the units and uh, groups must have seen that stuff and, and you know, formed as a result, no? Yeah, the Brits were kind of doing it beforehand, but nobody really, there were some small groups in France and Belgium and Holland, but, uh, and, and in Germany as well, but it really, uh, I think, started as a result of our, our two reenactments in Hohenfels. That's really cool. Yeah, I know that the UK, uh, like, reenacting sort of evolved there out of the uh, vehicle collecting scene, but that's that's really cool that you participated in, you know, the sort of spreading of the hobby across, you know, continental Europe. I've got to think, Rick, you must have had an opportunity to talk to a lot of veterans in those days, Oh, too. my God, it was uh, amazing for, for me as a young infantry officer uh, living in Germany, and um, I lived... Uh, kind of with a German family. My, my buddy and I rented an apartment uh, from a German family and uh, our landlord was a big hunter. And he was a, he's, wasn't too much old, he wasn't a veteran, but because he was a hunter, he, he knew a lot of the old timers. And uh, he got me involved in that. And I would go to these, to these different uh, hunts and, and social events and get to hang out with guys uh, and they all got to know me and you know would have me over the house and telling me all their stories and giving me their stuff and and then because I spoke German uh, I got to do a lot with the Bundeswehr and so we um, got to do a lot of uh, uh, parades and uh, memorial services and one time I got to be part of the honor guard it was a German platoon and American platoon uh, at a memorial service for the um, Organization of Ritterkreuzträger, so it was for the uh, the group of uh, Knights Crossholders, and so I'm at this event in Wetzlar with about 150 Knights Crossholders, hanging out, drinking beer with them, listening, and that, I was the only American officer there, and they were just, you know, then I spoke German and coming up and telling me how sharp my platoon was and how great we were, and thanks for being there, and asking about my life and you know I'm from New York and they were so excited hearing about me but I wanted to talk to them about you know their stuff and I didn't even really appreciate the opportunity I had and I'm sorry I, I didn't take more advantage of it and get to know more of those guys and hear more of their stories. That's incredible man that's truly incredible you know just what a feeling. I almost don't even want to ask this because I am afraid of the feelings of jealousy, but uh, what was it like collecting World War II stuff uh, living in Germany in the 1990s? <laughs> well, I got to Germany in 1986, and um, I met this girl who actually happened to be my landlord's daughter, and uh, I was trying very hard to date her. And one of the things she liked to do was go to the flea markets and collect. she collected antiques. And she invited me to go with her one day to this big flea market in a place called Sinsheim, which used to be a legendary flea market, probably still is. And uh, I just went because I wanted to go with her. I didn't, I didn't really think about collecting World War II stuff. But we got there, and I will tell you, we went home with a car full of 
you name it, uh, every kind of field equipment, uniforms, boots. Uh, I actually had to stop, go to a, a cash machine and get money because I bought so much stuff at this one flea market. And then after that, that's what we did every weekend. We went to flea markets and, and she got her antiques and I got my, my Wehrmacht stuff. NGI stuff. There was just tons of it in those days, in the 80s and, and early 90s. And, and then, of course, like everything else, it, it started to dry up. But uh, there was, there was, that's how I, I got a lot of stuff. That and meeting all these, these vets and uh, uh, kind of networking around. And once people in, the, in the, the community knew that I liked that stuff, uh, everybody was giving me their stuff. So it was just, uh, it was pretty, pretty, pretty good opportunity I had in those days. Do you still have that collection? I have a pretty significant collection, and I have been in the process of, of uh, thinning it out. My dream when I was, uh, I guess, naive was to have my own little private museum because I had been in guys' houses that had, you know, 40, 50 mannequins with just everything you can imagine on it, and I wanted something like that, and that's what I worked towards. Uh, but now it's... That becomes a burden, especially when you're in the army and moving around a lot. And, and so I went from probably about 40 or 50 footlockers full of stuff to now I'm down to probably about 10. <laughs> Still impressive. Did you did you get to date the girl? Yeah, I ended up marrying her, and uh, that that's how we started Hessen Antique. But that's I guess for later on in this in this discussion. <laughs> Oh, well, that's sweet. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, let's get into that because I feel like we could talk about this 1990 stuff for a whole hour easily, but I'm really anxious to uh, to hear about how it was that you came to start Hessen Antique and uh, you know what it was like at way back then when you got started. Well, to, I guess it kind of ties into going to that first reenactment. Um, when I was there, I met... Uh, a guy named Richard Ironman, who used to be the director of the military portion of the Sinsheim Museum, and um, Richard was a was a character. He was a vehicle collector and uniform collector, and really well known in in Germany in the, in those circles in, in the old days. And uh, he worked a lot in the movies, and he worked a lot with a guy named Joseph Filzmeier, who was a probably one of the best German directors in the in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, until he passed away a few years ago. And Richard liked doing, or uh, Joseph liked doing uh, period pieces, and uh, he was the director of the movie Stalingrad. And he, he had asked uh, Richard for some help when they were getting ready to do Stalingrad, and, and Richard suggested that they, they go to, the, to Hohenfels, uh, because of the training facility we had. And we had a, a brand new state-of-the-art mount site, which is an urban uh, training for you know, fighting in cities. And um, so they requested to use that, and the, the Army gave them permission, and they showed up one day with a bunch of actors. And uh, because I was my battalion was stationed there, and because I spoke German, I got tasked to, to give them whatever logistic support they needed. And to make a long story short, um, they had a couple of guys that were, were coaching and teaching the, the actors, but they were all older guys. They were probably in their 50s, and they were old German reservists. But they really couldn't shoot, move, and communicate like young soldiers. And the director one day said, hey, Rick, can you, can you show 
my guys had a how you you do this in the U.S. Army, and so my XO Ken Willis was with me, and we kind of did some buddy rushes, and you know showed them how to enter building and, and stuff like that, and then it it became a, a daily thing that I was coaching and teaching these these actors. So when they went to uh, film in Prague, uh, Joseph uh, asked uh, the army actually if they if I could go coach and teach these these actors on set. So I, I got permission to do that, and I went to Prague, and I guess it was 1991, and uh, worked on the movie Stalingrad, and ended up being the, the military trainer and actually working with uh, Joseph on choreographing some of the battle scenes and stuff. Well, because I was there and doing all that, I met all these different folks from the costume department and the props department and uh, the, the Czech military guys, and... Um, I met the folks from Sturm, and uh, from just from that one experience, I opened up all these doors and all these relationships. Uh, I worked on another movie with Joseph when I was in the still in the army uh, called Comedian Harmonists, where they uh, filmed a it was a film about a band that was kind of like the Beatles in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, they were a German group, and um, they had performed a concert for the U.S. Atlantic and Pacific fleets on the USS Saratoga in New York Harbor. And uh, so they recreated that, and I helped them do that. Uh, but then uh, I, I was just promoted to major, and I had too much to do in the Army, and I really couldn't do any movie stuff after that. Um, until I retired, and then all of a sudden the phone was ringing off the hook, and all these Germans from that I had known through the years in the movie business were calling me, asking me for help. And it just kind of grew from there. All of a sudden, we got a call one day from Jordan. Uh, there was a company making a, a movie, and I, I think it was the movie to Brooke. I'm still not sure because everything was so top secret. And uh, they needed about a battalion's worth of stuff, German, British, and Italian. And I was like, you know, why did you call me? And they said, well, our friends told us you're the, the one to call. And this was some of the guys that I worked with over in Jordan that were tight with the... Royal Hashemite Court, which is the royal family there, who was financing this thing. So I got this huge, huge contract, put it all together, got it done, and my accountant said after that, you know, you're either going to have to do this seriously or not do it at all because it's just the way the taxes work and, and, and all kinds of stuff. So Iris and I decided to, to do it full-time, and this was probably about 2008 that we started doing it full-time. That's incredible! What a what a what a crazy origin! <laughs> it kind of fell in my lap, you know. All of it did. I think it sounds like you were the right guy in the right place at the right time. Uh, I can't imagine what it must have been like being on the set of that movie Stalingrad, which um, all these decades later is still such a legendary war. Movie. Yeah, it, it was. It was for me, you know. Like I said, growing up as a kid, you know, living off of these movies and TV shows and playing soldier and, and being a soldier. And to get to go to Prague right after the wall comes down, and being the only American there on set, uh, it was it was a phenomenal experience. And I still get, you know, goosebumps when I see the movie, and I, I actually see myself get blown up in one scene. Uh, oh, so did you have a cameo? I there? got to play a I got to play a bunch in it. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, a lot of times I feel like I hear about you know people involved as advisors have cameo roles. So that's that's cool. You you got some screen time. <laughs> 
what were the uniforms that you guys were wearing in that? Were they Sturm yeah, uniforms? Yeah, everything, everything was Sturm in those days. So you started Hessen Antique around 2008. Um, I guess at the t- I remember I was, you know, I was a customer of yours probably uh, early on, relatively speaking. When you started the business, was your idea for it to be kind of a reenactor business or just sort of a, a general supply for whoever needed this stuff or did it like kind of come out of the film stuff or what was what was kind of your thought well uh, initially? I, I was reenacting until probably 2001 uh, once the war started and then I, honestly I just couldn't do it anymore and 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 part of me didn't want to do it after that after I guess after you go to war some guys will tell you yeah you know it's uh it's just not as fun anymore um, after going to war, and so I, I just I just didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, I had a, our son was born in two thousand and three, and I really didn't have time or interest. And I was still deployed a lot uh, during that time. Uh, but Iris had decided in two thousand and two to start her own business selling antiques. Before that, she was working for Lufthansa. And um, she wanted to start her own little antique business. So I supported that, and she did that while I was deployed. And I'd go to antique shows with her here in, in Georgia, and I'd put some of my stuff out on the table because, you know, she had have all her German kitchenwares and German antiques. So I'd throw some canteens or mess kits or, you know, fur tornisters or things on the, on the table, and it would sell. And so I started using her business license, actually, uh, to buy and sell my military stuff. Um, and then I kind of got the idea once the internet was really going, uh, we were selling stuff on eBay, like most folks kind of start out. And then we started our own little homemade Yahoo page. And um, after that, we uh, went to our, built our own web page and, and then we were actually the first ones in this little niche to to go to a full e-commerce platform and and then it kind of took off from there so that's where we really started to focus on on the reenactor stuff but of course original stuff was 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 available for us to sell as well so we we did that and then you just can't survive on on selling reenactor stuff i mean you can but uh, once you get big uh, especially we realized in um, 2008 during the first recession that we had to expand and so we started selling surplus and tactical gear and, and uh, other things you know World War One uh, more GI stuff and, and Bundeswehr stuff and so we kind of spread it out like that uh, to meet the demand because there's a lot of crossover in all those areas where did the name Hessian Antique come from? Like, what is there any story behind yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Or, uh, well, that was Iris's. Um, Iris is from Hessen. Uh, she's from a small town in, called Butzbach, and that's about uh, 30, 40 kilometers north of Frankfurt. And so the, the, the area is called Hessen, and uh, that was her business, Hessen Antique. So we just kept the name. And it was. We thought about Hessen Militaria or, or things like that, but we liked Hessen Antique because it kind of stayed under the radar. It's got a nice ring and, to yeah, it. Yeah, it had a, a nice yeah, ring got... to it. I remember um, years ago, 
you guys used to offer the whole range of Sturm-made reproduction stuff at a time when Sturm was making an unbelievably wide range of stuff. Um, and then uh, that kind of changed over time, didn't it, as Sturm kind of rolled back their reproduction line? Well, you know, that's a funny, funny story, and that, that was really a big game changer because one day I was up there at Sturm, and, and a lot of the, the other dealers, my competitors, some of them would go to Sturm and go pick through things. And, you know, you could find old surplus things that you could convert to, to uh, World War II militaria. And um, one day I was there, and they had just got a, a container in, and they were unloading it. And I saw this open box, and it had M36 tunics in it. And I asked the, the manager there, I said, well, what are these? He said, they, just came, they literally just came in. I wasn't even expecting them. And they were the first shipment of the Sturm uniforms. And, and I bought them all. I, I don't, can't remember how much were there. But I said, I want them. And he said, all right, they're yours. Because nobody else, had, he didn't even have them you know, listed or anything. He didn't even have them in the computer. And I bought them all. And uh, that one purchase changed World War II reenacting for a lot of folks. Because prior to that, if you wanted a tunic, you could buy it from, I can say Lost Battalions, because he's not around anymore. Um, and some of my other competitors would charge you three, $400 for a tunic. And all of a sudden now, you could buy a, a tunic from me that was just as good, if not better, for $150. That's awesome, man. And, and That's really that, cool. that changed everything. And then from there, um, you know, we, we're kind of fortunate we have such a good reputation or a good uh, relationship with Sturm. And we're right here in, in Georgia. We're about 30 miles down the road from them. So... Uh, because we had that relationship with Sturm in Germany and in the U.S., we kind of would get first dibs on a lot of stuff. And so while they were making their repros, uh, we were able to get them and offer them before everybody else could at, at, a, at a good, fair price. And um, through the years, they've kind of gotten away from that, and they're focusing more on the, the outdoors and the, the tactical stuff. So we've, we actually had to start going out and looking and, and making our own stuff. And because, again, with the co contacts I had made through the years working on the movies, I, I was able to find the right folks that could do that for us. And, you know, it took some, some time and some uh, experimentation and, and trial and error, but we're at the point now where we could, we've got trusted folks making stuff for us uh, that we think, you know, meets the right price point and quality point. Are Sturm still making World War II reproductions? I've heard like uh, sort of conflicting rumors about they, this. They are going to continue to make the main things like M36 tunics and M40 tunics uh, and maybe a few other things, but they're really getting away from it. Uh, the, again, they're focusing more, on, mo focusing more on the... Uh, the modern stuff well i don't you can't blame them either because they you know no, there's so I, much competition back when they were doing it there wasn't a lot of folks in europe uh, didn't have the access to the to the folks in india and pakistan and, and even china now that that make the stuff so they kind of they sure. kind of had a had a big uh grip on on the supply of that stuff and now they don't really have that anymore so they're kind of letting it go Mm, I I get it. I do. I mean, it is sad though. I had a, I I think I actually bought it off of uh, your side, Hessian, um, a uh, complete uh, Panzer uniform, and it was really nice. And uh, 
you know, I I sold it because I figured I could always buy another one, and now Sturm doesn't make Panzer uniforms anymore, and good luck finding one. So, yeah, so it goes. Rick, I remember there was a time for a while there where um, Sturm reproductions had become so wildly inexpensive. Like, I remember you were selling M43 tunics for $49, and you could buy, like, an M34 cap for eight bucks or six bucks or something that was like a, a crazy yeah time what in, happened in the annals of the availability what happened was uh sturm works uh, or one of sturm's customers is sportsman's guide and they're, they're probably their biggest customer as far as the surplus and sportsman's guide wanted to get in on the action and uh, bought a bunch of the tunics and they held them and they couldn't sell them and then, oh, then they just dumped them and so that's why those prices that you saw uh, there was a one period, and it, it was uh, devastating to a lot of folks because I wasn't selling them for forty nine dollars, but but Sportsman's Guide was, and then uh, fortunately for us, uh, I think a French company took over Sportsman's Guide at the time, and they didn't want to deal with the the reenacting stuff, so the, they got they got rid of what, whatever they had left. And so we could go back to normal pricing on the Sturm stuff. That's wild. It's stuff like that that where you can't really predict that must make the business that you're in uh, weird sometimes. It is weird. And, you know, there's competition. Um, I'll be the first to tell you that. And uh, my competitors will tell you that because uh, I know a lot of them don't like me because I kind of jumped in when they were already, you know, into this 10 years. And, and then all of a sudden this new guy shows up and he's, He's doing things different, and you know I think we were the first ones where you ordered something online and and we shipped it the, that day or the next day, as, as opposed to waiting two or three weeks for you know somebody to send your package out, um, and, and and those little things like that that I think we really raised the bar. That's um, something I've always been aware of and always try to to stay on top of, and so trying to get a feel for what's going on and, and keep my my finger on the pulse of what reenactors are doing and what's on the market and what's available what's not available what people want uh you just can't sit back and say all right i sell the best i sell the best you know the finest quality made in texas uh uniforms uh, you've you've got to really be on top of stuff and 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 be at proactive and and it's almost like being in the army and and looking at your uh threat assessments and your you know enemy possible courses of action <laughs> you just really got to always stay on top of it i think a lot of our listeners probably couldn't even really imagine a time when there were no e-commerce websites dealing in world war ii reproduction stuff and anytime that you wanted to buy somebody it meant sending an email waiting for a reply sending the money and then maybe they ship the thing maybe you have to chase them about it or uh, maybe it has to be manufactured for you you know it definitely was a a big change in the hobby when you could kind of add something to cart and then have it for the weekend if you wanted roger i mean and, and honestly i think we were the first ones to do that um even even when we had our, our homemade website, I think we were the first ones where you could add something to a cart, pay with a credit card, and, and place the order. Uh, the top guys were still, send us an email, print out our order form, and, and email it to us, you know, or uh, call us. Um, and, and we were already above them, and it took them, all of them, at least six months or, or more to catch up to us 
being able to to do it right there on on the cart on the computer and and, and your orders placed and paid for. I remember you were selling the uh, uniforms from Pearson or Chen, uh, a manufacturer in China. Those were really uh, highly regarded uniforms at the time. But I guess he eventually left the market. What what was the story with those? Well, Chen um, had contacted me once. Uh, I forget what year it was. Probably, I want to say around 2009. Uh, Telling me he could make uniforms and, and sent me some samples. And I thought, all right, it looks good. I'll just put it in my, you know, if I ever need it box. And then it's about the same time that this order from Jordan came in for this this uh, Africa Corps movie. And I needed, you know, like I said, about a battalion's worth of, of Italian, British, and German tropical uniforms. So I was in China working on another movie called John Robbie. And I went over to see Chen, and we sat down, and he showed me his production, which was very, you know, it was about five or ten people working in a little workshop, and uh, bought him some samples, and he was able to turn that around for me. And so I said, all right, let's see what we can do with uh, wool stuff. So I, I went over on another trip and bought a bunch of original uniforms over there, and uh, he had a guy that was working for him that was actually worked at the Hugo Boss factory in in China, and so we were able to draw up patterns and and go to the mill, pick out the the right quality for the wool that we wanted, get the colors right, and I will tell you I must have made about ten trips back and forth to China uh, to make sure that we had this thing down the way we wanted it at the price we wanted it, and so. That's where we started introducing the Aunt Z brand of uniforms, um, and I Chen was kind of doing his own thing for a little bit, selling you know individually, and uh, got him out of that, and so he could focus just on on working on our our orders, and it was financially uh, worked out for him as well. But I hate to say it, um, he got greedy and he got stupid, and so he would start selling you know under the table to other folks and uh, was just doing silly things. Uh, didn't want to follow a production schedule that we fought, that we had established. And then he had set up a factory that was too big for him. He had about 30, 40 folks working for him and he couldn't you know, pay to keep the lights on. I don't know why, because he was doing other things with the money that he, he shouldn't have. So that was the end of Chen. Do you think he had been misled about, or do you think he had the wrong idea, I should say, about how many World War II reproduction uniforms it would be possible to sell? Chris, I will tell you, I went over there with a guy uh, who's a German, in, uh, also in textiles, and we sat down for a week and came up with a production schedule based on what the market demand is, what sells, what doesn't sell, how many hours it takes to cut, to sew, to finish, to inspect, uh, and we had a whole list, and we must have had about 200 products. So, and we developed this execution matrix, production matrix for him. So it, it literally, literally laid out his work schedule for a year. And from that, he could figure out how many materials he needed and everything else. It, it was, you know, Germans, if you know anything about Germans, they're really good at that kind of stuff. And we'd work this whole thing out. And Chen just comes back with, well, all right, I'm going to make 100 of these, 100 of those, 100. And I said, I, I don't need 100 uh, Hilferin skirts. I need, you know, whatever. And, and it just, 
I don't I don't think he he had the ability to grasp that or he was just like I said lazy um, but it just didn't work out unfortunately and it's to, and it's a shame because uh, we, he was able to produce quality goods at a good price and customers liked them and the market uh, showed that but again it's just uh, it, it he wasn't up to the task I guess that's too bad but you eventually, I guess, kind of solved the the problem and and introduced what you guys sell now, which is your own sort of proprietary line of uh, uniform items, uh, in addition to other stuff that you sell. Yeah, and again, it takes uh, time. Takes and again, because I had met, made a lot of friends over in China uh, and contacts, uh, I was able to go and talk to different vendors and talk to different factories and workshops. And, and, and start from scratch again. It wasn't that hard because I had already done it with Chen, but starting fresh with somebody else uh, was was thing that saved us uh, to be able to continue to, to offer the uniforms that we do. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about what it's like uh, selling stuff to reenactors. And, you know, you can be honest. How does it really feel? You know, what is, what is the deal of being a vendor in the reenactment scene? Well, we have probably over 50,000 customers. And I would say at least half of them are reenactors. And, you know, we have, I always call them the gang of five. We've always got at least five people that uh, no matter what we do, it's always wrong. And, um, or they're just not happy with something. And then you get the folks that, you know, have a, a thousand questions and that's fine. Our staff, uh, Tim, who's my manager, Tim Stevens, he, he was a reenactor, so he, he gets it. And uh, we understand the, the pe- folks' questions and their concerns, because we've been there. We've done this, the same thing, like you talk about all the time on, on your podcast and in, in, the, in your comments that, that you post. So you've got to kind of, I won't say it's not a thin line, but you've got to balance it out between legitimate concerns and questions and criticisms and some things that are just sorry leave me alone please you know how many times are you gonna ask me the same question you know I, I can't I can't I can't make you a tunic or sell you a tunic with a, a 65 inch waist I mean, it just doesn't I, I can't do it <laughs> look what I've found over the years being a reenactor is that you know kind of anyone who puts themselves out there in the reenactment, milieu sort of it's just kind of opening himself up to criticism you know and i've seen (laughs) over the years how you've dealt with some of it which i think is uh really kind of admirable where it's sort of like hey you know uh try it you'll like it um i mean does it does it get to you has it ever gotten to you there's sometimes when it will get to me because the person on the other side is just not being realistic or being honest or lives in a, uh, just doesn't want to hear what you have to say. You know, uh, you can explain things, you can, and I, I try to be fair and I try, and I always try to be honest. Um, those, those are the things that, that you learn as, as a, in the army, as an army officer or as a leader. Um, you treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And, you know, there's no secrets. I'm not, I'm not trying to screw anybody. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you something that it's not. And if you don't like it, uh, all right, tell me why and, and, you know, we'll, we'll fix it or you can send it back. But some folks just don't get it or they don't want to get it or 
you know, some of the, some, and I hate to say it, but some of the younger folks nowadays expect, have these wild expectations of things uh, and, and can't understand why, you know, they spent $25 on a, on a economy hat and it's not a, a, a Yonka $150 hat. It gets to you sometimes, but it's, it's, it's part of the business and it's like any other business. I, I have friends in, in other businesses in retail and, and they have the same problem. So it's not unique to, to reenactors or reenacting to our, to our, our hobby. To me, one of the things that drives me crazy, you know, I'm not even like a, a vendor here. I don't have a, a dog in this fight, generally speaking, but seeing some of what you can read on Facebook groups or elsewhere on social media or wherever reenactors are chatting that's presented as like factual information about reproduction stuff that it's just absolutely absurd. Um, and you know, you must have seen you must have seen tons of this over. Oh years. yeah, I mean, I I, I I do my my daily scroll through the the uh, the different reenacting groups. Uh, used to be on on the the old email lists that we used to have, and and you can see things. And sometimes uh, I'll just let it go, and sometimes I'll dig into it, and I'll see that either one the guy's talking about something that he says he bought from us, and and the guy never bought it from us. The guy never placed an order, or it's somebody else's stuff or it's something that we sold on closeout saying this is what it is it's not great it only costs 29 dollars you know and uh, that kind of stuff and and there's some of that but I, I haven't seen as much of it as i did in some years and i try to stay on top of it because i don't want it to be like a uh there's another dealer that uh when somebody complains those threads will go on for four or five days and have 50 posts about how horrible that that vendor is you know uh, and I think you guys might know who I'm talking about, but I, I, I try, I try to, I try to, you know, nip that kind of stuff in the bud as soon as I can. And I think that helps because the majority of the folks know I'm a straight shooter. And when I say something, I'm, I'm not pulling that out of my ass and I'm not trying to make fun of you or, uh, anything like that. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the story and, and, and make things right. We got, like I said, 55,000 customers and, and, the, the more I couldn't tell you what percentage is, but I'd say at least two thirds are, are return customers. So we're doing something right. Who do you think are the people buying reenactment gear? Um, do you think a lot of the stuff that you sell goes to reenactors who are participating in actual organized reenactment events, or uh, do you think that a lot of stuff gets bought by people who are maybe doing airsoft or maybe just want an outfit for whatever reason? That's a good question because I'm always trying to get a feel for just how many reenactors are still out there. You know, the uh, we used to go to the Gap almost every year and set up there and had our building, and, and that was great. Uh, and then you kind of saw a decline in the in the attendance at the Gap, and, and I don't go to a lot of small reenactments, and but I talk to people who do, and you hear the numbers, and they are small. We're talking 100 to 200 people, maybe showing up, maybe three if you're lucky, showing up at your average reenactment. Um, so I think there's definitely a decline in the hobby, but at the same time, you look at things, and we've got a lot of young folks that are buying stuff or, or starting out, so. It's, it's really difficult to gauge. I, I, I don't think there's a lot of growth because there's, a, you know, there's new folks coming in, but at the same time, there's you know, guys like me who are in, in their 50s that are dropping out for different reasons. So I think it's kind of leveling, staying about the same number because our sales are about the same through the years. I mean, our, our company's grown, our sales have grown, but reenactment, World War II, 
German reenactment gear is still just around 40, 50% of our sales. So that's fascinating. Uh, like you say, I, you know, I think there has been some decline in numbers at events and, you know, you would think that over the years there has been so much reproduction stuff manufactured that you might almost think that on the secondary market, there would be so much of this stuff that it would make it challenging for people like you who are making and selling new stuff. But uh, to know that your sales are still kind of the same is really pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, like our boots, for example. I mean, I can't keep boots in stock. As soon as they, I need to start doing containers worth of boots because that's how how fast the boots sell once we get them in. And the same thing with the, I'd say 60, 70% of our uniforms, the, the World War II stuff, it, it, it doesn't last very long. It, it comes in and it goes. And I, I order bigger quantities every time, but it goes. Uh, so somebody's buying it. I mean, a, a lot of it is, is theater and film productions, but you know, that aside, the 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 end user, the the consumer that's buying it, those numbers are, are pretty steady. It's interesting to think back when you guys started. There were already established vendors who had a lot of World War II stuff, and then you guys kind of came on the scene and changed the dynamic in a lot of ways. Do you think it would really even be possible for a new vendor to appear that could compete? in World War II reenacting stuff on the level or at the scale that, that you guys and some of the other top guys are at? You know, we, we joke around here, and I always tell my, my employees, I said, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And, yeah, you know, it's easy to start your own website. Uh, it's easy to find wholesale places that will sell this stuff. But running a business, especially at this scale, is not easy. And yeah, we're a small business. We're a mom and pop, and I've got a handful of employees now. At one time, I had 14 employees. Now now we're down to six, only because we've figured out how to do it without so many people. Um, but it's it's a beast. I mean, it costs me over $30,000 a month just to keep you know this thing going. When you talk about payroll wow. and taxes and more taxes and lights and gas and internet and website and insurance and... Uh, regularly uh, supplies for stuff that just you know frequently goes out the door it, it's it is a beast um, and I don't want to share too many numbers with you for obvious reasons but uh, it, it takes a lot of management and a lot of skill to be able to to do all that stuff and I always say I wish I had another me now I'm not saying that it's this is all Rick you know the greatness of Rick that does all this shit but uh You've got to have a lot of management skills, and you've got to have uh, a good gut instinct on things, and, and keep track on what's going on in 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 your marketplace and in your customer base. And I don't think there's a lot of folks that can do that. I, I mean, the average small business starts, and if they're lucky, they last five years. We've been around twenty years, and, and again, it's because of a lot of hard work and, and paying attention to the things we need to pay attention to, and and not letting things get us down or, you know, uh, dealing with competitors who are sometimes friendly and sometimes they don't want to be friendly. So uh, it's, uh, it, it is a challenge and it's not easy. I'm not discouraged. I, I did discourage one time a young man uh, was talking to me at a show and he was a guy in his 30s and talking about how his dream is to be a military vendor and start his own reenactment company and sell uh, World War One German uniforms. And I kind of 
told him all what I just told you guys, and he went on Facebook the next day and said, oh, I talked to Rick from Hessen. He's so negative and uh, trying to discourage me and has nothing good to say about our, our hobby. And I just said, oh, all right, kid, you know, uh, knock yourself out. Yeah, good, so how's, good his, luck. how's his World War One company yeah, doing, I'd, I wonder? I'd like to know. You know? So. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, if, you know, I I sell you know secondhand stuff on the side, and uh, there was a point in my life where I also wanted to sell military full time. You know, because you know what's what's more fun than selling the thing that you like? And I actually found that you know I tried for a very brief period and just found that when you know you're trying to put dollar signs on everything and worrying about chipping it and making sure it goes the right pace and taxes and whatnot it becomes less cool to you you know yeah it, it's <laughs> it's a business i mean it and and, yeah. and you know it's still fun sometimes we'll be back there and we'll get a shipment of stuff in and tim and i'll be like oh shit look at this this is so cool you know <laughs> a box of freaking sure. uh helmets or mess kits and we're like oh wow look this is this kind of thing and there's there's a certain level of fun to that. I, I will tell you when I'm walking through one of one of our we have about three warehouses and when I go through them sometimes I just stop and look at something I go this is so cool. I wish I had the, this to play with when I was playing. So uh, that's cool. Th that's neat. And and uh, I hate to say it, but you know I'm kind of fortunate. Uh, I'm a retired army officer, so I've got my pension and my kids going to West Point, so I don't have to pay for college. And you know I I don't owe anybody any money. So I'm kind of fortunate. Uh, everybody's not that fortunate. So being able to, to have a business like this, which is really a niche business, uh, and, and even with the movie stuff, I mean, it's great. When the movies are good, it's great. I mean, it is. You, you're living in high cotton or tall cotton. But when, like over COVID, when they weren't making any movies, uh, then it was all yeah. it was all retail. And retail is either great or it sucks. So... Um, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I, I, I don't encourage folks to do it. Not because I don't want the competition. It's because I, I'm giving you my honest opinion. I, it wasn't my dream job. We took advantage of it because it fell in our laps and it, it, it gives me the opportunity to be my own boss and, and work with my wife and, and a good small team and, and, you know, eight miles away from my house and I don't, I don't have, and travel all over the world. Uh, uh, you know, so it, it, for for me, it worked out to be a great deal. And if somebody ever wants to to do it, you know, good luck. But I'm telling you, it ain't it ain't going to be easy. It's not as easy as buying something for ten dollars and selling it for for thirty. I wanted to ask. You know, we've seen this chaos in world supply chains since the pandemic. Um, how has that affected your business? It was difficult. Probably starting 2021 is where we started to really start to see things, uh, start to see problems with our, especially with our vendors, uh, because in Europe and in, in Asia, they really went extreme with the shutdowns and things. You know, I'm here in Marietta, Georgia. I think somebody called the sheriffs the first day of the lockdown and said, oh, you know, this company's open. The sheriff came by and said, why are you open? I said, because I sell police and military equipment. Oh, okay, fine. And that was it. You know, I don't think I wore a mask in Georgia three times during the whole pandemic. But other places, everything was Incredible. locked down and people couldn't come to work and they couldn't get their materials because their, their suppliers were closed. So we had problems there. Uh, you know, we used to do a lot of custom work, custom hats, custom boots, custom uniforms. And I had to stop doing that because 
it went from a four-week turnaround to a, a three-month turnaround or a four-month turnaround or forget it, I can't even, I can't even make it now. So we saw that and then it lingered uh, for a lot of my suppliers. Even until now, we're still catching up on some things like, here's an example, uh, steel helmets. Uh, my steel helmet shells have been ready for six, seven months, but they can't get the leather to make the liners because the leather factory has been closed because of, that town is shut oh, down. Geez, really? So it took that long just for something like that to happen. The other problem with the pandemic is the shipping costs, as you guys know, and I've heard you discuss before. I mean, the shipping costs have gone through the roof for everything. Uh, you know, uh, when we started, a uh, priority mail package was four, was $4. Now it's could be anywhere up to $20, depending on where you live. And UPS has gone up, and even though we have discounted rates, it's still expensive. And the shipping stuff in and out has is, is crazy. Containers used to cost 2500 bucks. now they cost $8,000. So um, that's a problem. It, it, it's killed my international business, uh, where international to Europe used to be 15-20% of our business, and now it's maybe 5% because it's just so expensive to get stuff over there. It's really frustrating because they don't have to pay so much to get stuff over here. So then when, you know, they, when they see the prices to have stuff shipped to them, they, they balk at it. And, you know, I don't really blame them. But, yeah, it does, it does suck trying to uh, sell stuff to Europeans and, and have to tell them how much it would cost. Rick, I've got some questions from listeners sure. um, that I'd like to ask. Um, Jerry Ferguson wanted to know how you feel about creating your own uniform line with a maker rather than selling the off-the-shelf wholesale uniforms if it was worth it uh, developing your own product. I, I definitely think it was because, again, when we started, uh, our competitors, uh, there were two of them were getting their German uniforms from S&M Wholesale in California. Uh, that's where that was probably the only guy that was wholesaling uniform German uniforms and they were three three four hundred bucks a pop or two two or three hundred bucks a pop um, the Sturm uniforms were great but again that was a supply driven thing and they had their issues too with Sturm you know as the as the prices kind of went up they, they became more expensive so ha having the ability to to create different versions of, of Wehrmacht and SS tunics and Luftwaffe tunics and you know all the, all the whole range of from from privates to officers and, and everything in between creating our own stuff gave us the opportunity to do that and, and fill the need or avoid uh, for collectors and for reenactors where they could get something affordable and, and a good quality so th that's been nice and and I will tell you I enjoy working with my my uh, vendors because now, after 20 years, we've narrowed it down. We've got a good, dependable folks uh, that they're happy with what they're doing. They're happy with the, the uh, you know, the the, the costs and, and, and what they're making on the things. And, and we're happy and our customers are happy. So it, it's all worked out really, really well. Dustin Belair wanted to know what trends you might have dealt with when it comes to the reenactor market. Have there been times where a particular item becomes wildly popular and keeping prices the same maybe was difficult knowing that the supply was maybe going to stay the same, but demand had suddenly changed? I will say that there's certain things that kind of stay in a constant, like your M36, M40 tunic, uh, M40 trousers, M43 trousers, uh, M43 caps. Those things are, are constant. 
boots, jack boots, ankle boots, they're constant. Uh, every now and then we'll get something really super cool that where we get it, everybody loves it, and then, you know, I can't get it anymore. Um, with prices, if you've you followed us, you see we keep kind of keep our prices uh, as low as we can and as competitive as we can. But even then, that's a challenge now with with the way inflation is and, and you know, the, the shipping costs 30-40% more to get it here and then just the, the, the end product costs more. So you're going to see more of that. Uh, I know people don't want to talk about it, but uh, I, I've had to increase my prices uh, as things come in and once I sit down and, and calculate what it costs to get it here and what the customs duties were and what the, the price increase in the product is. Um, so that's that's an issue. but. It, it really depends on on where we are in the, in the economy and, and what what the what the product is that we're talking about yeah that's interesting to think that probably like macroeconomic factors may have more of an effect on the price of an item than like how hot a particular impression might be in a given reenactment season yeah I mean there's times where honestly things do get hot because there's a certain event going on um, at one, one time we'll sell, I guess it was a couple of months ago, we sold out of Luftwaffe stuff. And a lot of Luftwaffe, people wanted Luftwaffe Panzer uniforms, Hermann Gor, Goring Division stuff. And it was like crazy. We'd never seen so much Luftwaffe stuff be purchased in one pop. Or sometimes it's DAC stuff. Everybody wants to do it. There's a big tropical event and uh, people want all this, this DAC events or DAC gear. So those things kind of drive the train on stuff. Uh, but even with other things like, you know, East German stuff, for example, there's when, when I started East German stuff, you could throw it away. People were giving me the stuff I didn't even want it. And now I wish I had everything or bought everything that I had the chance to buy in the old days because we'll have months go and people will clean us out of everything East German. I mean, literally. And, and, and then all of a sudden it'll sit back on the shelf for, you know, months and then all of a sudden people buy it again. So I, I, I don't know. I'm not into the the airsoft as much as I probably should track it. Um, but there's there's definitely times where certain things are, are more in demand than others. We'll have we'll have parkas, winter parkas and, and overcoats, and it'll be a freezing cold winter and we won't sell one. And then all of a sudden it'll be the next winter and everything's sold out. So again, you can't figure it out. You know, you, you figure, all right, we're getting ready for winter and I'll, I'll order that stuff a year out. So I have it in, in October. And nobody buys it. And then all of a sudden, come come next February, everything's gone. Zachary Williams writes, uh, he says he's always been curious what you do with returned items. Are, do they go back into the supply? Do they get sold as seconds? He says, with big companies like Amazon offering returns with no questions asked or items back sometimes, has that influenced how people treat returns from smaller companies? Um, we've had to do some, some adjustments in the way that we do, like we'll offer a shipping label, uh, to return it, to make it a little bit more easier. Our, our returns have always been real simple. Uh, you know, let us know as soon as you get it, if you want to return it and you can, if you don't like it, we might ask a few questions, which it's nice to know why you're returning it and, um, you know, include an invoice, those really basic things that some people seem to have a hard time with, or, you know, it, return it in the same condition. You know, we get 
uh, here's a black panzer jacket came back and the guy's got you know 75 angora cats at home and and so now my black panzer jacket looks like uh elton john ward in a concert you know um <laughs> we get that kind of shit or a guy buys a pair of boots and uh says, well, I just try, tried them on, but it looks like you walked six miles in them. He says, well, I, I only wore them out to the mailbox. I live in Florida, and my mailbox is 400 yards from my house, so I wore them down the trail, you know, that kind of shit. Um, but for the most part, if, if it's still in good shape, no problems with it, we, um, we'll just put it back in the inventory. Or if, it's, if there's an issue with it, we'll either sell it at an event or sell it at a show or put it on the website and say, you know, here it is. It's returned. Here's what's wrong with it. Max writes, will someone ever produce Gebergsjäger boots or rucksacks? Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's one guy I think I saw a couple of years ago uh, making Gebergsjäger boots, and I think he's in Czech Republic or someplace. Um, or there was a guy in Spain, actually, I think that was going to do it. But I don't think they ever went anywhere because this. I mean, you guys have seen original Gebergsjäger boots. I got a couple of pair. They're they're just so complicated. Economies of scale is totally a thing with these yeah. things. Yeah, and know? and then again, all right, I can do it, but they're gonna cost three or four hundred bucks. You know, maybe yeah. not that much, but they're gonna they're gonna cost more than it's worth uh, to make them and sell them. And then again, you know, everybody talks about Gebergsjäger stuff. I, I I I got into it. I was selling Gebergsjäger stuff. Everybody wants it, but then it doesn't. It it's such a small, small group that everybody says they want it, and then you get it, and then it sits there forever. So, yeah, everybody wants it till it's time to pay for it, I suppose. Eh? <laughs> you know, we've got the basic of Jager stuff, and, and we've done some things, but again, it's just it's almost one of those things that uh, it's it's just not. The, the value added in, in, in doing it is not there. Devin Cook asks if there is any particular item that is not being reproduced right now that you would personally like to see someone create. For World War II, honestly, I don't really, I can't think of anything that's not being produced for World War II. And if there is, and if, you, and if he knows it, shoot me an email. <laughs> Tyler Stanton wanted to know if your reasoning for doing online only instead of having a brick and mortar store, if that was just a cost saving measure or why you guys don't have like a retail location. Uh, that's a good question. Um, we started off as internet only. We're in an office warehouse uh, park here in Marietta. And so I don't really have room for a storefront. The other thing with a storefront is um, you have to have somebody who's dedicated to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, c folks come in and they want to try something on. And, and we have 6,000 different items, and that's not including sizes and all that. I think it's uh, over 30,000 lines or, or something like that of, of products we have. So if, just for example, a guy comes in and he wants to buy a jacket. So he, he's got to try on two or three jackets before he decides what size he wants. Then he says, oh, you know, I want insignia. So then he needs insignia. Oh, well, I'll get a pair of pants. Can I get a belt? And, you know, that kind of stuff. That takes a lot of time. And, and I don't really have employees that have the time to do that, especially now. We've kind of uh, slimmed down and, and got everything where we've got just the right amount of people to do what we do. We had it so that local folks could come pick up their order and that was not a problem until, I guess, last year or two years ago, we had a character came in and, and uh, 
long story short, he started a fight and it got ugly and uh, caused a lot of problems. So then we said, well, we can't do that anymore. Uh, I'm, it's Sorry just not that. worth putting myself or my employees in that in that position over you know a pair of boots. So um, we just said, "Sorry, you can't do it." That's that's crazy how one person can can ruin something for everybody like that. Yeah, yeah, that that really stinks. Doug Strong wanted to know if you had any funny product development stories, like uh, getting giant sized items or. Uh, potential manufacturers using ridiculous materials and samples or anything like that <laughs> you know that always happens and when we're when we were trying out new new folks um we'd get and and even then we get stuff in the mail unsolicited all the time from india and pakistan and china and and even some characters in the states uh that say hey i've got the greatest thing and here it is um where uh the material's really, really flimsy, or it's like rubber instead of leather, and um, pickle helmets that look like cartoon characters would wear them. But uh, from my guys, honestly, I can't say that nothing comes to mind right now, but we get that stuff in the mail all the time, and, and some of it, you know, Bevo insignia, where it's like Kelly Green breast eagles on or blue breast eagles and just weird shit like that but no nah, there's nothing that really sticks out and again i think it's because we've we've kind of narrowed it down to our, our suppliers are, are pretty reliable i have seen some of these weird samples um a vendor friend of mine once gave me a waffen rock that he had gotten in the mail from india or pakistan that was unsolicited that had been made from a photograph and there must have been like a wrinkle on the waffen rock in the photo because the maker had just kind of put like a random slash pocket on the front in the <laughs> it was really bizarre <laughs> dylan williams asks if there's ever been an item that to your surprise sold like hotcakes I know you mentioned the Luftwaffe stuff flying out the door, but is there anything else that uh, oh man that you didn't really expect and it just everybody uh, bought it? Chris, I will tell you, there's a lot of that stuff. Honestly, a lot of stuff like that. I, I, I'd have to think hard. What exam? What one thing? I mean, sometimes we'll we'll put stuff on there, like canteens. When there was a time when we started selling can making our own canteens and selling them. And I couldn't keep them in stock. They just, like, in one day, I think I sold 100 canteens just like that. Wow. Uh, so there's 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 items that that, added, that that happens. I wish there was more of them, but it, it, it kind of comes and goes. Okay, the last question is from Travis, and he asks about helmets, and uh, I'll kind of paraphrase here. Um, there are differences between the reproduction helmets, some of the reproduction helmets that have been available from you or various other vendors over time, and original helmets. Um, is there maybe a way for there to be reproduction helmets made at some time that are that are basically identical to the original steel helmets? Here's the thing with helmets. Right now, the helmets are made in two countries. They're made in India and they're made in China. The, um, to, to make a helmet, and I, I went down this road because I was going to make, uh, we, we used to sell original helmets. I used to go over to Europe and buy them a couple hundred at a time. And you can't get them anymore. So when they started to run out, I went to China and talked to some of my folks over there. And we walked through the whole mechanics of it. 
it costs about twenty thousand dollars to get the the machinery set up just to cast to start a fresh cast on a helmet that's why helmets are kind of limited in the sizing that they do and there was uh, yeah, interesting to lay out that kind of money when you start to think about it well how many helmets do I have to sell to, to, to recoup my $20,000 just in the startup to start this new, uh, I don't even, it's not a mold, but it's almost like a, a die, I guess would be the right word for it, uh, to get the helmets the way you want them. And then to, the, and then there's a special shaping tool if you really want to cut the rim around the side the right way to do it on, on an M42 and an M40 or an M36. Uh, there's a special special tool that go, goes around the rim of the helmet to do that that nobody has they, they all have a kind of workaround but that tool costs I forget what it was I'd lie if I told you but it's it's in the tens of thousands of dollars so wow. to, to make a no shit this is like you know freshly stamped in, in, in you know from Ulm helmet it's gonna you're, you're starting off at over forty thousand dollars, and nobody's—I'm not going to invest that kind of money in that. So the next best thing is you got to work with the guys that are already making them, and we've been able to make some changes in in the the helmets that we get now from the guy that we get them from, and for the price, you can't—you really can't beat them, I guess, as far as the the shape and the quality. Uh, there's about four guys in China making helmets. And there's probably about three or four in India making them, but I think the ones that we're getting right now uh, from our guy in China are probably the best ones. There's so many various reasons uh, and different integral parts that kind of keep a unit together and keep it running for inching up toward 50 years here as a as a unit. So to be be able to say that you've been around for for this amount of time, it it's it's quite impressive. To get that full immersion in 3,000 meters, uh, it snowed on us, it was frost at night, sleeping in s under cell ponds. Yeah, it was a great experience being on, on that location, being in the Alps, uh, wearing the uniform and being with like-minded guys. Hey, it's a real pleasure to be here as a, as a long-time listener and someone whose long drives to reenactments are uh, filled with the sounds of the Reenactors Corner podcast. It's a bit of a fanboy moment. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Rick, we've gone way past our time. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us and uh, answer all these questions. It's been awesome talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, seriously, Rick. This is this has been wonderful having you on here. Great perspective on all this. Well, I, I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time and, and listening to me uh, and my whatever I have to say. Uh, I, I always admire uh, your feedback on the on the different groups that you guys post on and listening to your. A podcast over the last couple of years. It's also been really informative. Uh, I just want to say that you guys have always been very fair and balanced, and, and that's refreshing because there's not a lot of that on these groups, especially on Facebook and things. So I hope that the, a lot of these uh, younger folks that are getting into the hobby are listening to what you guys have to say, and, and, and your experience is really invaluable uh, for the folks in this hobby. And so keep up the good work. Well, I thank you for that. Yeah, that's really nice. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Um, 
If there's nothing else, Rick and Chris, I'll see you in the field. Okay, see you in the field, guys. Roger out. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of The Reenactors Corner.